So here's the setup. With the exception of a very brief preface that the author of Luke's gospel uses to sort of set the stage, Elizabeth and Zechariah are essentially the very first characters we meet in this gospel. And right away, Luke wants us to know what kind of folks we're meeting. Zechariah, we're told, is a member of a prominent priestly class. He gets double priest mention. I don't know if you noticed that. He's a priest of a priestly class, right? And Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron. So in other words, she herself is of priestly origin. And this association with priestly piety isn't just an act for Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke makes sure we know that they are righteous and godly people inside and out. No hint of hypocrisy here. They keep all the commandments, we're told. They keep all the observances, and they are worthy in the sight of God. It's important that we know all of this right away because we are quickly introduced to another piece of background about the couple. They don't have children, and not because they're too young or haven't given it a shot yet. Apparently, the couple has been unable to have kids, and they are too old now to have any human hope for a change in that reality. In a religious and cultural milieu in which children are seen as particularly special kinds of blessings from God, and in which childbirth is seen as the primary duty and honor of women, a lack of children is all too easily interpreted as a sign of sin or shame or moral failing. We know from the words uttered quietly by Elizabeth just at the end of that first reading that this holy and righteous woman has internalized this stigma and shame, calling it a disgrace that she has endured. So this sort of revelation about this first family in Luke's gospel is meant to disturb and to disrupt the readers, if you'll pardon the pun, preconceived notions (laughs) about childbirth and childlessness. They have no children, but, the narrator insists, not for lack of godliness or worthiness. In beginning the story here, the narrator of Luke's gospel calls to mind a foundational story, or stories, in the Jewish scriptures. The situation of Elizabeth and Zechariah resonates, it's supposed to resonate, through the centuries with the stories of Abram and Sarah, Hannah and Elkanah and others, righteous God-followers whose childless existence is miraculously reversed by divine intervention. The biblical scholar Sharon Ringy, one of my teachers at Wesley Seminary, points out that even the language of this section of Luke's gospel seems designed to invoke the reader's connection to to much more ancient narratives of the faith. See, the preface of the gospel, the first few verses, is very scholarly in its tone, and the main body of Luke's narrative is, is quotidian in usage, But the section we heard from today seems designed intentionally to echo the style of the older Jewish scriptures. Sharon Rini writes, I'm quoting here, 
The contrast is like what happens in a worship service where all the prayers are in Elizabethan English and the sermon is in modern speech. For many people who are brought up on earlier English translations of the Bible, such as the King James Version, the rhythms of Elizabethan English connect them to the entire biblical story. The language itself is strengthening and reassuring because of the memories and associations it evokes. And in that way, it makes real again the presence, power, and love of God. Ringy writes, It does not require a great deal of imagination to see the peculiarly biblical-sounding Greek of the beginning of Luke's narrative having a similar effect on its hearers. So if we're tuned in to Luke's stylistic choices, and if we're familiar with some of the narratives of the Jewish scriptures, then we, the reader, can predict what will happen next. God will act in a miraculous way, the surprised couple will welcome a child into the world, and this child will have some sort of special purpose or role to play in the great narrative of God's people. In a bit of dramatic irony, Zechariah is not able to see what we, the readers, have already guessed. While serving his shift in the temple, Zechariah is visited by a messenger of God who lets him in on the good news. Zechariah questions the angel and is slapped with a particular sort of fine. He will be unable to speak for, oh, say, the next nine months or so. <laughs> By the way, where is Josh, did I hear you say that in the Quran? It's only three days. Zechariah gets off easily, I guess, in the Quran. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Let me just say here that I, like, I'm pretty inclined to be sympathetic to Zachariah, okay? Like, I, 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 I like that he doesn't mind asking questions. I think it's pretty solid practice if a heavenly messenger shows up with, with uh, 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 sort of unusual tidings to ask a couple questions. Like, I would encourage that practice. Uh, so, so, so at first read, I, I kind of want to jump to Zachariah's defense here, right? Like, what's so wrong with asking questions? Doesn't this passage sort of stigmatize doubt and promote an unquestioning sort of faith? Isn't this seeming punishment a little bit unjust? But these days, I'm not so sure that a sentencing to silence is such a bad thing, at least not for folks like Zachariah who are accustomed to having some sort of say in matters. Sharon Ringy notes that Zachariah who is used to speaking, is silenced. While Elizabeth, whose body itself communicates what Zechariah cannot, articulates God's favor. A quick look around our nation at the folks who are used to speaking is, I think, instructive here. I wouldn't much mind a moratorium on speaking for the folks who talk the most in our country? Imagine nine months with nothing from the president, nothing from Congress, nothing from the most powerful actors and producers and network owners and news anchors except for silence. Blessed, peaceful, non-tweeting silence. Perhaps the angel's message to Zechariah is as much an invitation as a condemnation. 
Unless you've been without internet or radio access for the past month or so, you've probably heard about the Me Too hashtag campaign on social media. As women across the country speak out about their experiences of sexual harassment and assault, courageously shattering a culture of complicity, stigma, and silence that surrounds such attacks, the inappropriate and even abusive behavior of one powerful man after another has come to light. For some, at least, consequences have been swift. And not surprisingly, American men have had a mixed record of reactions, from the bumbling to the hand-wringing to the outright defensive. In a recent sermon at Foundry United Methodist Church, our our mutual friend, T.C. Morrow, said this. She said, I've appreciated the we hear you, we believe you messages I've seen on social media as people share their stories of surviving sexual harassment and sexual assault. These are important first steps, but it will take significant cultural change to fully shift away from the vestiges of the notion that women are property. Gentlemen, TC writes, a few social media posts, especially of the, well, I respect women type, do not necessarily mean you are fully an ally to women. I invite you to engage in some truth listening. You may learn an additional way or two that you can more authentically respect women. I'm struck by TC's phrase, truth listening, the other side of the truth speaking coin. TC invites men to engage in some truth listening. And I wonder if men, even men like Zachariah, who genuinely seek to be good and righteous and law-abiding and worthy, practiced silence a bit more, whether truth listening would come easier for us. I wonder whether the speech that would arise out of the practice of silence might be wiser and less reactive and more empathetic. In fact, I think Elizabeth gives us a hint of this very thing in our readings for today. At first, not so surprisingly, given the patriarchal underpinnings of both Luke's society and our own, we hear little from Elizabeth. When she does finally speak, it is only after she has gone into seclusion. We don't know any details about this seclusion, but she is certainly not shouting from the mountaintops. And yet, a somewhat surprising thing happens when Elizabeth receives a visit from her cousin Mary. Again, in Sharon Ringy's words, Elizabeth's body teaches her, and thus teaches us, theological truths. Elizabeth's body teaches theological truths. Elizabeth's child, the one who will become John the Baptist, leaps in her womb at the sight of Mary, pregnant with the one who will become Jesus. And it is Elizabeth who is the first one in Luke's gospel to proclaim the Messiahship of Jesus. She uses the Greek word kurios, which we often translate as Lord. She's the first, in other words, in the entire gospel to make a Christological affirmation. And she exclaims it in a loud voice. Her blessings and exultations in turn invite Mary into singing her own earth-shaking, power-challenging Magnificat. Out of Elizabeth's seclusion arises wisdom and gospel truth. 
Out of her silence, she pours forth proclamation, prophecy, and praise. And what of Zechariah? His story, as it turns out, is not over. When the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth, their community assumes that the baby will be named after the father, Zechariah. No, says Elizabeth, taking confident command of the situation, the baby's name is John. How did Elizabeth know this? Zechariah can't speak. Did he write her a letter? Or does Elizabeth have some sort of access to the same divine wisdom, the same good news, and the wisdom to know how to share it with her community? The community doesn't seem to want to believe Elizabeth. Big surprise, says every woman ever. They don't want to believe the woman. But Zechariah, prompted to sign to them, does finally ask for a writing tablet and lets them know that Elizabeth has it right. Then, and only then, after writing, you know, y'all, she's right, you should listen to her, is Zechariah finally permitted to speak. And the speech that pours forth out of his long silence, it's an echo and a continuation of Mary's earlier song. It's a benedictus to echo and amplify her Magnificat. We sang and recited pieces of Zechariah's prayer earlier in the service, praising God for liberation and mercy, for holiness and justice. Such is the tender mercy of our God, Zechariah cries. Tender mercy, a word which in, in the Hebrew scriptures is derived from the same word for womb. Such is the tender mercy of our God, who from on high will bring the rising sun to visit us, to give light to those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Out of Zechariah's silence arises a call for our feet to be guided in the way of peace. And so as I read these texts, I reflect on Elizabeth who, out of her silence and seclusion, speaks. I reflect on Zechariah, whose hasty speech leads him to silence before he can be invited into speech again. I think about all those hashtag MeToo posts on my Facebook feed, which have now been joined by hashtag ChurchToo posts, breaking an oppressive form of silence and naming the reality of sexual harassment and assault in our supposedly sacred spaces. I think about silence and speech and reflect on times in my own life, too many times recently, it seems to me, in which I leapt to hasty speech instead of pausing, waiting, holding a wise silence. And times when my speech has served to silence others. And I think too of times when I could have, should have, spoken up and instead said nothing. And times when I've felt shut down or silenced or shamed or stigmatized. I've been reflecting a lot on when to speak and when to keep silent. And I suppose what I wish 
is that I had some sort of easy three-step guide for you this morning. Here's when to speak up, and here's when to hold your tongue, I could say. And there would be three points, and they would be pithy, and they would be alliterative, and they would rhyme. (laughs) And I don't have that. But I guess I do have three themes or maybe three spaces in our lives which I think call us to some discernment and wisdom in deciding when to speak and when to hold silence. First, for folks like me who like to talk, who have a tendency to jump in and speak right away, I think we need a regular practice of silence. I think we, like Zechariah, need to listen to the divine messenger who invites us, rather than condemns us, into a space of silent reflection. Perhaps we may discover that there are forms of silence that are more powerful than some forms of habitual speech. Perhaps if we begin from a space of silence, our speech will be wiser, more empathetic, based more in believing and amplifying the stories of those who have been marginalized and silenced, and thus more evocative of justice and of mercy and of peace. Perhaps those of us who are accustomed to speaking, but suddenly seem to lose our voice when it comes to naming and interrupting abuse and injustice, might spend more usual time in silence so that we could speak more rightly and more justly when the extraordinary is called for. Perhaps we can learn, as T.C. Morrow says, to truth listen. Second, for folks who, perhaps like Elizabeth, instinctively move toward silence and seclusion, perhaps in that silence and seclusion, you might hear the voice of the Spirit calling you to speak out calling you to cry out. Perhaps, like Elizabeth, you can listen to your body and to the theological truths that it has to share. Perhaps, like the courageous women who have broken oppressive silence with the hashtag MeToo campaign, your voice is needed. Perhaps silence is the seedbed out of which good news and the proclamation of truth can arise. And third and finally, I want to say a few words about silence as it relates to stigma and shame. As I mentioned earlier, this whole story of Elizabeth and Zechariah is based around this trope of a barren woman who miraculously conceives a child. Now, of course, in its original context, the the trope was intended as a message of hope, a reversal towards justice for those who have been unjustly associated with sin and shame. And yet, this idea that somehow finally having that child fixes everything still leaves some of that same stigma in place, doesn't it? It still says that those who have children are somehow blessed specially by God, while those who do not, what of them? There's a danger in interpreting the text this way, a danger evoked by the text itself, reinforcing the very shame that the text is meant to undo. But what the text does is it calls us to think critically about the stigma and shame that surrounds those whose circumstances are popularly blamed on their own moral failings, their own decisions, 
or sins. And in Luke's time, and I think still in our time, barrenness or childlessness, always traditionally blamed on the woman, never the man, by the way, was one of those circumstances. In our own time, those who come forward with stories of sexual harassment and assault are often blamed for the violence enacted against them, as if it is their moral failing and not that of their attacker or of the system that empowers their attacker. They're told that if only they hadn't dressed like that or hadn't had that drink or associated with that man, they would have been safe. We need to challenge that sort of stigma and the silencing that it seeks to enforce. And while I can't speak with much personal authority about the stigma surrounding childless, around childlessness uh, as the male partner in my relationship, I am generally spared such things at Christmas parties, or about the silencing of survivors of sexual assault, I do know a thing or two about the silencing effect of shame and stigma. As someone who struggles with a mental illness, I've grappled with the question of whether the suffering associated with my illness is somehow caused by God or by my personal failings or by a lack of faith, which I am convinced it is not. And so what I see as good news in this text for anyone who has had an experience that has been surrounded by stigma and shame and enforced silence is not that there is some miraculous cure waiting out there if we just have enough faith. That doesn't really land for me as good news anymore. No, the good news is that it is from those places of silencing, it is from those places of stigma and seeming shame that the words of gospel truth, of liberation and of mercy can actually pour forth. It's not that Elizabeth's barrenness is healed, but that her experience of shame and stigma and silence become the source, the seedbed, out of which the proclamation of good news can arise. Not because suffering is good, but because in the midst of suffering, we are somehow able to stumble across the goodness of a God who proclaims hope in the hopeless spaces, in the deafening silence, in the feeling of seclusion and isolation, in the seeming darkness there, perhaps we can finally be quiet enough to hear the voices that need to be heard. And they're whispering now, perhaps. But soon, soon they'll shout out for justice and for truth. And so I pray for us all that we may have the spiritual discernment to know when to speak out and when to hold silence and when to break that silence. That we can practice the kind of silences and the kind of speech in which we hear the voice of the Spirit proclaiming that the dawn from on high is breaking shining on those who dwell in the shadow of death and guiding us along the way of justice and of peace. Amen.